Turn with me to the book of Genesis in chapter 27. As we come now to the second half of this chapter, which we began looking at this morning. This morning we watched the deception unfold as Jacob, dressed in his brother's clothing, wearing animal fur on his body, having a meal cooked by his mother, now stands before his father Isaac and says, I am Esau, bless me. He lies directly to his father's face. And Isaac isn't convinced at first, but he smells and is convinced and blesses. And so let's see exactly what happens next. Let's pick up in verse 26. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, 
The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both you in one day? We'll stop there. What does God require of us that all will go well for us in the end? What is the kind of life that God would have us to live? I think we could summarize what God requires of all people in these words. Trust God and do what's right. Trust God and do what's right. Faith or trusting God is the heart of the matter. Everything depends on this. If we trust God, we will do what is right. We will go to God to learn what is right. We will pay attention to God's commands. We will receive God's commands as as good for us. We will seek in every situation to do the right thing. Our faith will show itself in works. But if you take away faith, we will not do what is right. Unbelief always leads into sin. Jacob should have trusted God's promise that he was going to be uniquely blessed. Instead, he used guile, deceit, to obtain both his brother's birthright and his brother's blessing. He may have justified himself as he was doing it. Didn't God say the older was going to serve the younger? Didn't God promise that I was going to be strong? I'm just fulfilling what God had said. But if he had trusted God, he would not have sinned. He would have waited on the Lord's timing and God Himself would have brought these things to pass. In our own day, there are many people, many Christians who who know the promises of God. But rather than simply trusting God and doing what is right, they turn to their own wisdom and their own ingenuity to try and bring God's promise to pass. We see this in evangelism, for example. God has promised that He is going to save His people. But instead of trusting God, looking to the Bible, living as God is called, Christians begin evangelizing in unbiblical and ungodly ways. They think that they need to do things to help bring God's promises to pass when in fact they are doing more harm than good. They water down the Gospel. They get people to pray a prayer and tell them they have been saved when there has been no fruit whatsoever. And they think they're helping to bring God's promises to pass. Rather, they ought to be trusting God and doing what is right, not acting of their own accord. Maybe this is true of circumstances in your own life right now. God has promised to bless you as a Christian. 
God has promised that His grace will bring you through any trial. But instead of trusting Him and looking to His Word about how to respond to this trial, you're responding to this trial in your own wisdom, in your own ideas. You're acting in ways that God would never have you to act, but you're doing it because you think it will help you get through this trial in a better way. Dear friends, the end does not justify the means. Just because you have a noble purpose doesn't mean that you can pursue that purpose in any way you see fit. God will bring all of His good purposes to pass. We must submit everything we do, no matter how pure our motives, to the teaching of God. God is wiser than us, and we should learn from Him. We should test our every thought. We should test our every word. We should test our every action in accordance with what He teaches us. When we fail to trust God and do what is right, we sin. When we sin, though as we saw this morning, God's purposes are not thwarted, there are still painful consequences that follow. This is the main doctrine of tonight's passage. When we sin... Though God works through sin and over our sins to accomplish His good purposes, nevertheless, there are still temporal consequences that we will have to face. There is a fallout from sin in this life. So let's look at how this played out for Jacob. As we saw this morning, Jacob has deceived his father into thinking that he is Esau. The final test was this test of smell. And when Jacob comes close to his father wearing Esau's clothes, Isaac declares, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Isaac is now convinced that it truly is Esau who stands before him. And so he blesses Esau, who he thinks is Esau. Remember, this is a solid oath declared in the presence of God Himself. It cannot be revoked. Isaac gives a blessing of material prosperity. He asks that God would cause the earth to be fertile and fruitful for His Son. He says, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Here is the blessing of great prosperity that was first given by God to Abraham, passed from Abraham to Isaac, and now, though Isaac is unaware of it, it is being passed from him to his second-born son, Jacob. Jacob will become a very wealthy man. I'll only mention here what we've seen on other occasions that this material blessing that the patriarchs experienced as they they lived as pilgrims in the promised land is meant to be a picture for us of the great wealth of spiritual blessings that we have as we dwell as pilgrims in this land, which will one day be our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. The best is yet to come for us. One day this world will be turned into paradise. But today, even as we wait for that day, we too are being greatly blessed with prosperity. 
Not necessarily material prosperity, but spiritual prosperity, which is far, far better. It is far better to have peace with God and joy in your heart than to have all the gold in Fort Knox. The Old Testament is all about earthly shadows pointing to spiritual things. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these are the types of what a Christian is going to experience. They are living as pilgrims in the promised land and God is just pouring out blessing, pouring out blessing, material. You can see it with your eyes, blessings upon them so that we can look at them and say, just like they were being blessed in our day, though we can't see it with our eyes, we are being blessed every day tremendously. Second, Isaac gives to Jacob this blessing of power, this blessing of prominence. He says, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now remember, Isaac thinks this is Esau. By saying, be Lord over your brothers... And especially, may your mother's sons bow down to you. He is specifically going against the word of God. For God had declared that Jacob should be the preeminent one. But Isaac prefers Esau. And he's acting in disobedience. That phrase, may your mother's sons bow down to you, reflect that that in Isaac's mind, he specifically wants a day in which Jacob is bowing down to Esau. He wants the very opposite of what God has declared. His heart does not want to submit to the will of God. But here is the sovereign wisdom of God. (laughs) Even as Isaac is in this moment actively working to oppose what God has declared will happen, God is in fact using Isaac to accomplish what He has declared will happen. It is kind of funny. There's an irony here, right? There really is. It, 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 it makes me think of, of the cross, right? Of, of Satan and how Satan was working to, to, to put Christ on the cross, how he actually came into Judas to accomplish the betrayal of Jesus. And everything that was being said and done at that time, Satan was working unseen, bringing his arch enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ, to a place of utter defeat. And yet every single thing that Satan was doing to destroy God's Son and to disrupt God's plan was actually a part of everything that God had planned would happen. God was using Satan to fulfill the very purposes that Satan thought he was working to split apart. Satan would later see that he was God's pawn. He didn't know it, he would not believe it, but even Satan's most vicious and disgusting acts were part of God's sovereign will to glorify Jesus and save His people. And that's what's happening here with with Isaac. And it's a reminder to us that try as we might to fight against the purposes of God, try as we might to fight against the plans of God, God will have His way. No matter what we do, we will find that every one of our actions will ultimately be used by God to accomplish His good goals. And so here is Isaac, actively seeking to oppose the work of God, and unbeknownst to him, he's actually fulfilling the very plans of God. Jacob is being blessed. 
So Jacob is going not only to have great wealth, but Jacob is going to have great power. Jacob's descendants are going to become a powerful nation. These words of Isaac are fulfilled in an earthly sense in national Israel. But ultimately, this great nation that Jacob will become is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom that surpasses every kingdom. The kingdom which will be established forever, which will never fade away. And then finally, Isaac blesses Jacob with these words. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember God speaking very similar words to Abraham? They were passed to Isaac. And now these words have been passed to the third generation, to Jacob. This was true of Jacob's physical descendants, ancient Israel. Right? Those who sought to bless Israel were blessed. Those who sought to curse Israel would find themselves cursed. Now, ancient Israel no longer exists. I do not believe... It's interesting, I had this in my notes after our Sunday school discussion this morning. I wrote this before, I promise. I, I do not believe that it is right to say that those nations that bless the nation of Israel today will be blessed by God, and that those nations that oppose Israel today will be opposed by God. The Israel in our day, the nation of Israel in our day, is a very different nation than ancient Israel. Modern Israel is not the theocracy which was established at Mount Sinai in which God was king of the nation. Rather, that theocracy has given way to another theocracy, the one in which God is king through His Son, Jesus Christ. The only kingdom which is truly God's kingdom, and of which these words are true, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless God's people, the church, and you will be blessed. Curse God's people, the church, and you will be cursed. And we see this happening in the New Testament. We see this change as as Jesus and the apostles explained that the new Israel is not ancient Israel. The new Israel is God's people, the church. And Jesus says things like this about His church. He calls us His little children because we come to Him as little children. And He says, Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple... Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What's Jesus saying there? You bless my people and you'll be blessed. On the other hand, Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So severe will be Christ's curse on such a person that such a death will seem better than what they are actually receiving. And so we even see in the Gospels this teaching that those who bless the church will be blessed and those who curse the church will be cursed. Husbands know that we care about the way people treat our wives. If someone treats our wives well, we are thankful for that. We are eager to bless such people. If someone treats our wives cruelly, it makes us angry and we want to respond in righteous anger. Well, Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and the church is His bride. 
And it's the only bride he's ever known and will ever have. We, the church, are his bride, and he cares about the way people treat his bride. So be careful how you think about one another as Christians. Be careful how you talk about one another and treat one another. Be careful about how you speak about other churches and talk about other churches. You are speaking about Christ's bride. Do everything you can to encourage and love and support God's people. Don't tear God's people down. Don't tempt God's people to sin. Don't be a means of bringing God's people to turn away from Him or to disobey Him. Christ will not respond well to that. It makes Him very angry. It's a loving anger. It's an anger rooted in His love for His people. We ought to give our lives in service to the church. We ought to love the church, do all we can to benefit God's people. When we bless the church, Christ will bless us. We are the assembly of the new Israel. We are the assembly of Abraham's children. So, Jacob leaves, and in comes Esau with his tasty meal, now ready to receive his blessing. Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And you can almost hear the confusion in Isaac's voice. Who are you? I I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. How does Isaac respond when he hears this? Well, in the Hebrew, it literally reads this way. Then Isaac trembled a great trembling exceedingly. In other words, this shook Isaac to the very fiber of his being. You ever had that feeling when something, some terrible realization begins to dawn upon you? That's what is happening here for Isaac. He suddenly becomes aware of what has just happened, and he is startled, and he is angry. He is very upset. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac doesn't know for sure whom he is just blessed, but but he makes clear that this thing that's been done, it's been done. There's no taking it back. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. In the Hebrew, these are the exact same words that were just used of the trembling of Isaac. Isaac and Esau are now in the same boat here. This terrible realization is dawning on both of them. Both of them, father and son, are startled. Father and son are angry. Father and son are upset. Together, they had planned to act in disobedience to the Lord. Now their plans have been turned against them and all of their intentions have fallen to the dust. Bless me, even me also, O my Father. But at this point, everything's clear in Isaac's mind. It doesn't take him long to put it together. Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Now Esau's feelings are turning to sheer hatred for this pesky twin brother 
that has made his life miserable. We can imagine his eyes ablaze and his brow furrowed as he he speaks in a defiant tone. Is he not rightly named Jacob? Remember the name Jacob means the supplanter. He has cheated me these two times. He has taken away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Esau longs for there to still be a blessing for him. But both brothers cannot be preeminent. One must be stronger than the other. In fact, the blessing that Isaac now gives to Esau almost sounds more like a curse. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. In other words, Esau... Material prosperity will not be your lot. The earth will not be greatly fruitful for you. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. The picture here is of violence. Esau's people will be a people of violence. They will be less powerful than Israel. But the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites will cause problems for Israel. They will attack them on occasion. For part of their history, the Edomites will be subservient to Israel. At other times, they will be Israel's enemies. What's the fallout of all this? Look at verse 41. Look at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. The phrase Esau said to himself doesn't mean what we think of when we say something to ourselves. Nobody else hears it. It's said in our minds. Rather, this is a phrase in the Hebrew that means he resolved. He declared in his own heart this thing. Esau is, is his, his, he's shaken. He's, he's stirred up. He's, he, he, need, he wants peace. And he finds a way to have peace in his heart. Namely, he comes to this resolution. Here is how Esau will make things right in his own eyes. He will wait till his father has died and he will kill his brother Jacob. And there's double motive here. If he kills Jacob... He will have his revenge. And if he kills Jacob, he will have the full inheritance. He will have the preeminence. Everything that Jacob has stolen will be his again. He will have the wealth of the family. He will be the stronger brother. And he will have his revenge. How interesting that Isaac, in his blessing of Esau, has just said that he and his descendants will live by the sword. They will be a violent people. And now it's already coming to pass. Already Esau, his heart is inclined towards violence. He's he's thinking violent thoughts. He is the reckless son. He is the one who acts on a whim. But on this occasion, he is willing to be patient. He will allow his anger to settle into a simmer, waiting for the right time for it to boil over into outright murder. We're told that Rebekah hears 
of what Esau has resolved. In other words, Esau has not simply said this to himself. Esau has let other people know what his intentions are. His anger is well known. And so she sends Jacob away. He must flee his home. She says, why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? And that last question kind of has a double meaning to it, doesn't it? It might mean that Rebecca is afraid that these two brothers are going to get in a fight and kill each other and she'll be bereft of both of them in one day. Or it may also mean that Rebecca feels she has already lost Esau. That her and Esau's relationship is so strained that, that he's already, in a sense, dead to her and she is dead to him. and She's lost one son. And now she's afraid that if, if Jacob hangs around, if he, if he stays there among the tents and Esau passes by Jacob, it may simply take a glance and Esau will not be able to control his anger and she will have lost, lost both of her sons. And so she sends Jacob away. What are the consequences of Jacob's sin? Well, among other things, there is now an amplified hatred between him and his brother. His brother is out to kill him, and he must now leave the home he has always known. He has to flee for his life. His mother, Rebecca, who loves him dearly, will never see him again. Jacob did not trust God. Jacob did not do what was right. He acted in unbelief and wickedness. And now he faces the consequences of living in fear and living away from his family. This is what sin does. Sin poisons our most precious relationships. Sin can turn family members against one another. Sin destroys trust, destroys respect, destroys love. If we say, I'm a Christian, why shouldn't I sin? I'm forgiven in Jesus. It just proves that we truly underestimate the power of sin to make our lives today utterly miserable. If you want to bring hardship and difficulty and pain to the lives of those you love, then sure, go ahead and live in sin. But if you love your family, if you care for those who are closest to you, If those who are around you are precious to you, then you will flee from sin. You will hate sin. You will have nothing to do with sin because you know that your sins will hurt the ones you love. In Jacob's case, the sin of lying, deceit, caused so much harm. And that kind of sin, lying, deceit, will do a lot of harm to our relationships as well. I want to just ask, couple of frank questions here. Those of you who are married, are you lying to your spouse? Are you deceiving your spouse in some way? You need to come clean. You need to come clean while you can. You, you, if you keep walking that path, you will destroy your marriage. Love, trust, respect, it will crumble. I know most of our older children aren't in here tonight. But I would say to to our, our younger children, don't ever try and keep things from your parents. 
Don't ever try and cover things up or try and deceive your parents. It will bring pain to them. It will destroy their trust in you. I want to close with an illustration from the life of R.C. Sproul. He gives a testimony about an incident from early in his own, in his own marriage. See if you can relate to this. He says, deception is a serious barrier to communication. And lying obviously destroys credibility and violates trust. But more subtle means of obscuring the truth may also prevent effective communication. When we begin to play hide and seek in marriage, the most important context God provides for openness, we are in trouble The marital game of deception is established on this false premise. What she doesn't know won't hurt her. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. I came home from the golf course one afternoon. Vesta, that's his wife, asked me if I had had a good time. I recounted the events of the day with delight, and then she asked that provocative question, How much money did you spend? I gave her a proper accounting of the green fees, the caddy fees, a couple of new golf balls, and then I added in some money for a lesson from the pro. Vesta exclaimed, We can't afford for you to have golf lessons. I meekly surrendered to her feelings and changed the subject. In the weeks that followed, my golf game improved a bit, and I kept thinking, Two or three more lessons, and I will really have this all together. Hope springs eternal in this golfer's breast. So I went to the pro and had three more lessons. Only this time I didn't tell Vesta about it and carefully instructed the pro not to send any bills to my house. He smiled in agreement, saying he had to do that for a lot of the guys he taught. Unfortunately, the pro forgot to relay the message to his secretary. Arriving home one day, Vesta met me at the door with a knowing look on her face and the bill in her hand. I was dumbfounded. And then all I could do was stand there and laugh. Sternly, she said, it's not funny. I replied, I know, that's why I'm laughing. I didn't know what else to do. She asked, why did you deceive me? I gave her the myth of, well, I figured what you didn't know wouldn't hurt you. She said, well, it does hurt me. And it hurts me even more that you felt like you had to hide it from me. I told her that I didn't particularly enjoy feeling that I had to hide things from her either. She was violated by my subterfuge. And this experience was painful for both of us because I chose deception over truth. Now, maybe that's not the most severe example, and that's why I chose it. It's maybe a little more lighthearted, and yet it is serious, isn't it? It is serious. Can we relate to this? Whether it be in marriage or any of our other more serious relationships, are we practicing deceit in similar ways? If there is deceit in our hearts, we need to turn from this. We need to repent. We need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have the forgiveness of our sins. We need to hear Jesus call us to be a people of truth, a people of honesty. We need to make things right with those people whom we have deceived. 
We need to come clean. So let's remember the doctrine of this passage. When we sin, though God works over our sin and through our sin to accomplish His good purposes, His good purposes are not thwarted. Nevertheless, there are very real and painful consequences that we will have to face in this life. So let us remember that and let us trust God and let us do what is right. Let's pray.